excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 16, if you want to turn there. But before we uh, read from that passage, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had the experience of choosing people for a team before? So, like, I remember when I was at school, teachers would sometimes choose particular people to be captains, and then they would take turns choosing from their fellow students which person would be on their team. So whenever I got this role, it was kind of a little awkward because you see your friends standing there and they're hoping that you'll choose them. And as far as I could help it, I would choose the talented ones that were my friends. Um, But as the list got a bit smaller, the true motive came out and I was choosing just the gifted and the best and the strongest and, and leaving my friends on the wayside. Now, you might think I'm kind of a bad friend. Yes, I am competitive. But, uh... Isn't that kind of normal? Isn't that kind of how we would normally choose people for a team or when we're in in an election or if we have to pick people for something, we usually choose the people we think are strong. We usually choose the people we think are intelligent, the attractive, the gifted. Anyone who impresses us, we think those types of people will be successful and that's usually how we think. But in light of that, I want to ask you another question. How do you think God would choose his team? How do you think God would choose his team? If God was the captain of a team and he had a group of people to pick from, what are the types of people he would choose? What would he be looking for in his choices? This is really important because if we get this wrong, we may favour characteristics that God rejects and reject those that he favours. If we get this wrong, we may end up pursuing a picture of the Christian life that we think is ideal that really is opposed to what God's picture of the ideal Christian truly is. We want to know what God values in people so that we can value what he values and so that we can become the type of people he would desire to be his representatives so that we can be the church he intended. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I think this question is just as applicable to you. Because I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to a non-Christian friend or whatnot, and they've had a wrong idea of God, or a wrong idea of the type of people that God favours. They say things like, oh, I've done too many bad things in life for God to accept me. Or I couldn't walk into a church, the, the whole building would collapse as I walked in. But where do we get that idea from? That's... That's not a biblical idea. So this question is just as pertinent, just as relevant to you as well. We all have our own idea of the kind of person God favours. We all have our own idea of the ideal Christian. But the story we're looking at in 1 Samuel this morning is going to put our questions to rest. Because in this story, God chooses for himself a new king to replace King Saul we get an insight into what God values in people, into what he is looking for in us. Now, last week we witnessed Saul's fall from grace. He was the the king people asked for. He was tall, handsome and strong, but he was also a proud, impulsive blame shifter and, and God rejected him. So let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 5. And uh, if you're a note taker, this first part is called The Quest to a Tiny Town. The Quest to a Tiny Town. So verses 1 to 5, we read, 
The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So we begin our story with with Samuel mourning over Saul. He's heartbreaking over this king who has become everything that he hoped he wouldn't become. He was the king that people wanted. He was the king that people asked for. Adam told us that Saul's name literally means asked for in Hebrew. And God says to Samuel in verse 1, it's now time to move on. I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. Now, in Hebrew, this literally reads like, I have chosen a king for myself among his sons. So, in other words, we're about to see the type of person God would have chosen to be king, as opposed to the type of person the people chose to be king, a.k.a. Saul. In fact, the Hebrew word for chosen, it's the word ra'ah, is usually translated as seen. So, it's as if God is saying, I have seen a king. For myself among Jesse's sons. This will become important later because this, this Hebrew word, ra'ah, will get used repeatedly to illustrate what people see, what they pay attention to, as opposed to what God sees, what he pays attention to. So keep that in mind for later. Now before we even find out who God chooses, it is interesting that God sent Samuel to Bethlehem. Why? Well, Bethlehem was just a small backwater town. Most people would have expected God to send, to send Samuel to an, a great city, a big important city. But God sends him to Bethlehem, a tiny town in the Judean hill country. Which, by the way, is an initial clue for us as we discover what it is that God values and who it is that God sees. Now this quest to a small town wasn't a safe one. It was extremely dangerous because Saul was intent on keeping his kingship. Samuel fears for his life because he believes Saul will stamp out any threat to his kingly title. And in Saul's eyes, Samuel's mission would have been nothing less than high treason. And unfortunately, this shows just how hardened Saul has become. Because Samuel, God's mouthpiece, the prophet, expressly told Saul in the last chapter that the Lord had rejected him as king over Israel. Now it seems that Saul now has no regard for the Lord's will whatsoever. So God protects Samuel by telling him to go to Bethlehem under the guise of offering a sacrifice. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he invites Jesse's family to the event. That's Act 1, the quest to a tiny town. Act 2, the choice of a small son. The choice of a small son. We pick it up in verse 6. When they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called in Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. <coughs> Excuse me. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now in verses 6 and 7, that Hebrew word ra'ah pops up again and again. And it shows us that God sees things very differently to the way we see them. You see, Samuel saw Eliab. He saw this firstborn son walk into the room and he thought, this is the Lord's anointed. Tall, handsome, you know, a great, a great um, person for the bachelor. He's, a, he's, a, he's Saul 2.0. Saul 2.0. And he looks at him and he says, surely this is the one. But God says to him, no, I've rejected him. And, and he uses this moment to teach Samuel something. He says, Samuel, you and everyone else look at the outward appearance. You're impressed by the outside. But I don't look at that. I look at the heart. I look at what's really going on. And this is really countercultural for us. I mean, think about the culture we live in. We live in a culture that encourages us, encourages us to construct our identity with things. We live in a culture that is obsessed with external appearances, with the outward. We live in a world where clever marketers tell us to, to create our identity through consumption. What I mean is uh, we think that we're a better person or we're a more valuable person if we drive a BMW and own Scandinavian furniture and, uh, <laughs> and have an iPhone and an Apple Mac and whatnot. It's, it, the marketers tell us, if you want to be this type of person, you need to own these types of things. You need to own these types of things. But since when does owning a Mac or a BMW have anything to do with who I am? Since when does having things actually tell you anything about who I am as a person? That's what we call materialism. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's bad to own things, not at all. If you own a Mac, I wish you all the best because Windows is better anyway. But the idea that stuff that things, that externals, this idea that it can define our identity needs to be rejected. That's not a biblical idea. That's not how the Lord sees things. And that's not how you and I should see things. So let me ask you, just to, to get at our hearts a bit more, think about this honestly. Would you rather have plenty of money in the bank or plenty of meaningful relationships? Material riches versus relational riches. Would you rather be known as cool and trendy or as kind and loving? Would you rather be seen as attractive, beautiful, handsome? Or would you rather be seen as approachable, friendly and humble? God sees 
right through our appearances. He sees straight through the car we own, the clothes we wear, the body we've sculpted. Our true nature lies exposed before him. He sees our hearts, our thoughts. He, he sees to the very depths of who we are. God does not look at the, people, the, the things that people look at. Now, at one level, that's kind of scary. Because it means he sees our brokenness, he sees our evil, he sees our addictions, he sees our wicked thoughts. But on another, that's really refreshing because he doesn't care about all the things that we slave away to buy and achieve and he doesn't care about appearances and and having to try and look a particular way. We don't need the latest, the best and the shiniest in order to be seen by God. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's jump back into the story. Jesse keeps bringing out his sons and God rejects one after another. Until Samuel is confused and he asks, is this everyone? And Jesse's like, well, no, I left out the youngest taking care of the sheep and I just didn't think you'd want to see him. Isn't it telling that David was left out of this significant occasion. I mean, the prophet of Israel came to town and invited Jesse and his family. And the family just leave him out there taking care of the sheep. I mean, he was a nobody in his family. He wasn't significant. And Jesse's like... Oh, sorry, I read the wrong... Went to the wrong spot in my notes. (laughs) Um, Here we are. So the Hebrew word translated youngest also means smallest. I wanted to make a note of, of David's insignificance again. The Hebrew word translated youngest also means smallest. So God allows Samuel to look through the tallest and oldest until there is no one left but the youngest, smallest son. And so Samuel cracks his whip and says, I told you to bring the whole family. No one is sitting down until he arrives. Maybe Samuel's a little grumpy in his old age. But you can imagine the boys running out into the fields, into the pastures, looking for David, and they run up to him and say, David, the, 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 the prophet of Israel, Samuel, he wants to see you. What? No time for questions, just, just get down there. David runs in, the shepherd boy from the backwater town of Bethlehem, and he meets Samuel, and this runt of the family is the one God chooses. He's handsome, but he's small. He doesn't look like a king. And God tells Samuel, this is him. This is the one. Anoint him. So coming back to our opening question, how do you think God would choose his team? What would he be looking for in people? What is it, or who is it, that God sees? Well, the answer is he sees the unlikely, the looked over, the smallest, the ordinary. He sees the people the world rejects. God loves to use exactly what the world wouldn't use to do more than the world could ever do. Why? Because it shows and reveals the foolishness of the world's rejection of God and it ensures that only He gets the glory. And this is a theme all throughout the Bible, this this theme of God using people the world rejects to do more than the world could ever do. God favoured Abel, the younger son, over Cain. God chose to create the nation of Israel through barren old Sarah. God favoured Jacob over his older brother. God chose Joseph 
over his older brothers. God chose Moses over Aaron, his older, better spoken brother. God chooses the unlikely, the looked over, the smallest, to accomplish his purposes. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, okay, I see it, but how do I make sure that I am one of the unlikely that God sees? How do I make sure that I'm the smallest? I mean, Ben, I'm six foot five and my last name is Bongers. How do I... I don't have an answer for that one, I'm sorry. How do I ensure that I'm one of the unlikely that God sees? I want his favour, I want him to see me. But I think that's the wrong question. Because the truth is, we're already totally messed up, broken people. We're already completely and equally unlikely in God's eyes because we're all equally under the curse of sin. So I think a better question is, do you realise you are already one of the unlikely? Do you already know your brokenness? You see, all of us are under this curse called sin. We're enslaved to its power. Sin is this desire to rule our own lives without any reference to God. Sin is choosing things based on our opinion of what is good rather than God's opinion of what is good and attractive. Our obsession with appearances started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, Eve looked at the fruit and and it appeared to be good to her, this, this forbidden fruit. She looked at it and said, no, that is good, and she ate of it. That's where our obsession with appearances started. And this obsession wrecks our lives and it wrecks our world. It causes us to esteem the rich and beautiful more highly than other people created in God's image. It causes us to obsess over the latest fashion and spend money on clothes that could only be that affordable because they were made in slave-like conditions. It causes us to rack up debt buying bigger and better houses, cars and things all because we have wrapped up our identity in externals. Sin lies at the heart of our obsession with appearances and we are hopelessly, hopelessly enslaved to its rule unless God delivers us. Our problem is that bad that we need someone, something from outside of us, from outside of our world, to break in and give us a solution. And the beautiful news is that God has provided us with this. You see, God raised up someone like David who would be the king we need. And this king loves to help people who recognize their need. His name is Jesus. And his coming was predicted hundreds of years before he even came. In fact, it was predicted that he would come from the same obscure little town that David did. It says in Micah 5, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And King Jesus would rise to greatness, but not in a way that we would assume. He wasn't impressive or tall. He didn't look attractive or kingly. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. As far as appearances go, he didn't look like our solution. He didn't look like a king. He didn't look like someone who could help us. But God does not look at what people look at. He was born in an animal's feeding trough. 
he wasn't handsome or majestic, but he was the king we needed. And his beauty was in the inside. And instead of using his people for his own glory like Saul did, he gave himself for his people. And he died in utter shame so that he could make an externally obsessed people internally beautiful. You see, he took on our internal ugliness. He took on our sin, our shame, our guilt, our addictions, and he freely offers us in return his internal beauty, his righteousness, his good, his love. That's the good news of Christianity. And what's even better about that news is that God doesn't charge us a thing. All we need to do is turn around from our old way of life and open up empty hands with the belief that he will give us Jesus, that he will give us our solution, that he will credit Jesus' righteousness and internal beauty to us. So let me ask you a question. Will you give up on externalities? Will you give up on appearances? Will you take an honest look at your internal state and just bring that before God? Would you just bring that before him? You don't need to pretend in front of him. He sees you as you are. Just bring your internal state before him. He's a good and gracious God. He's a better king than we could have ever imagined. We can trust him with ourselves. Let's take a look at the final act in this story. In this act, we discover the reason behind David's later rise to glory. And we learn that God opposes the proud and the conceited. So this is Act 3. It's called The Opposition to a Conceited King. The Opposition to a Conceited King. And we're picking up in verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his servants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messages to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Now the key word in this story is the word ruach, the, the, the word for spirit. In the Old Testament, God's spirit would come upon particular people to empower them in their role. And there were usually three major roles in the Old Testament, prophet, the priest and the king. So the rushing of God's spirit upon David affirms God's approval of him as the king of Israel. But on the other hand, the, the removal of God's spirit from Saul affirms God's rejection of Saul as king. In fact, God goes even further than that. He, he actively opposes Saul 
by sending what our text calls an evil spirit. Now this bothers some people because they ask how can God send an evil spirit when he is good? Now I've just got two comments I'll quickly say on that. The first thing is that the word used for evil, ra, also means disaster, harm, trouble and so on. So it could just as easily be translated as spirit of disaster. And that changes things a little bit. It doesn't necessarily have to be an evil demonic spirit. It could, be, could well be a spirit of God's judgment. But number two, even if it was an evil demonic spirit, the Bible tells us that God can use even evil to accomplish his purposes. Lamentations 3 verse 38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? That word calamities is the word ra again, which we get evil and disaster from. And in this case, God brings trouble to Saul because he opposes the stubborn king. Saul was intent on holding onto a role for which God had already expressly rejected him. Now, I personally don't think this is judgment for judgment's sake. I see this as God's loving discipline until Saul finally relinquishes his claim to the kingdom. When we reject God's will and persist in disobedience, it is a miserable, miserable place. And this is exactly the predicament that Saul finds himself in. James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. And God opposed proud, stubborn Saul but favoured small, humble David. And we can see God's hand in the fact that Saul unwittingly chose David the one to replace him as king, to help him in his torment. And without the Spirit of God, David was just an unimpressive shepherd boy. But since Samuel's visit, David became the Spirit-anointed solution to Saul's torment. And again, David prefigures Jesus. Because just before Jesus began his work in Israel, we're told that the Spirit descended upon him. In fact, Jesus himself opened up the scroll of Isaiah. We read of him doing it in Luke. And Jesus says, Let me get it up for us. There it is. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, did you know that the the very title of Christ means anointed one? God sent Jesus, the Christ, as our spirit-anointed solution. Just as David was for Saul. And the mind-boggling thing is that the spirit who used to come upon only specific people like David and Saul to empower them for specific tasks has now been poured out upon everyone, every person who believes and belongs to Jesus. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the spirit rushed upon the twelve disciples. And one of the disciples, Peter, stood up in front of the crowds and he read from the book of Joel saying, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. As we turn to God in faith, King Jesus not only delivers us from our slavery to sin and our obsession with external appearances, but he fills us internally with the most precious, beautiful gift in existence. He fills us with his presence, his spirit. And this is why the label Christian fits us perfectly. We are Christ. Ians, we are little Christians, anointed ones, filled with his spirit and empowered for the task of spreading the good news about Jesus to all the nations. 
You see, think about it. When the Spirit of God came upon David, he was transformed from a humble nobody into what verse 16 calls a brave man and a warrior. And he ended up becoming Israel's greatest king, the king by which every future king was judged against. And now we have received the Spirit of God, church. God wants to transform ordinary people like you and me. He wants to use us to reach our neighbours, our workmates, our families. He wants to use you and me to bring healing and good news to a broken and hurting world. God specialises in using ordinary people like David, like you, like me, to do wonderful and awesome things. And my question for us is, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for if we're not already involved? What are we waiting for to get involved in God's mission? There's, there's no excuse that we can put before God that can possibly disqualify us. He loves to use the least, the most unlikely to do his work. So let's pray and ask God that he would use us together to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray that you would bring this text home to our hearts. Lord, our preoccupation with appearances goes far deeper than we ever see sometimes. We can just stereotype people the first moment we see them. We can think someone's more important because of the way they dress. Lord, we ask that you would give us your eyes, that you would give us your heart, that we would think the way you want us to think. Lord, we, we want to be a church that is internally beautiful, that is filled with your spirit and your power. Lord, we ask that you would fill us. Fill us, Lord. We just come before you, Lord. And those of us who don't know you, Lord, we, just, we can just bring our internal place to you right now. We just let you in and show and let you look in upon us, Lord. We know that you see everything already. And Lord, we just want to place our trust in you, in you, Jesus. Thank you that when you see us for who we truly are, you don't turn your head and reject us, but you offer us Jesus. You offer us your Son, who makes us clean and righteous, pure people. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, we just ask as well that you would just empower us with your spirit. Send us out, Lord Jesus. Do away with our excuses, Lord. Make us aware of the opportunities that you have for us every single day. And may we walk into them by your grace and your wisdom, Holy Spirit. And may you give us the words to say, we just offer ourselves up for your kingdom, for your glory, for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Love.